My name is Conor Geerty and I'm uh, privileged to be chairing one of our uh, Space for Thought lectures. Uh, as uh, you all know and as I've already suggested, this is uh, called the new academic building. If a few of you have a couple of trillion dollars, I'm sure it could be called after you or your mum. <laughs> but at the moment it's called NAB. And uh, we've decided here at LSE to uh, mark the arrival of this building with a reminder to us that we are a thinking institution. We produce ideas, we hope, as well as consume money. <laughs> and uh, as part of our commitment to thinking, we've had this fantastic and luxurious opportunity to uh, write to the people we think to be the most distinguished thinkers from around the world and ask them to come to LSE. And it's a tribute to LSE uh, and to their own open-mindedness, warmth and generosity that they have been able to say yes. And in particular, that uh, tonight uh, we have had a yes from uh, Professor Catherine McKinnon, who is the Elizabeth A. Long Professor of Law at the University of Michigan, who has done her BA degree at Smith, a JD at Yale, a PhD at Yale, and has taught at uh, so many places it looks as though you're reviewing them for a book because it's <laughs> Yale, Chicago, Harvard, Osgoode Hall, Stanford, uh, Basel, Columbia and Berlin. Berlin is more complicated than Berlin but Berlin will do. Uh, and sites uh, are numerous in the academic literature and in the courts, the Canadian courts among many that have taken up and run with the ideas of the academic we're privileged to hear from tonight uh, and uh, not surprisingly given the work that uh, Catherine McKinnon has done. Uh, books with titles such as Sex Equality, Towards a Feminist Theory of the State, Only Words, Women's Lives, Men's Laws, and Are Women Human? But actually, I, I think the most important feature of this person's, Catherine McKinnon's record, is to do with activism. Uh, and I think what's remarkable is that not only have we here somebody who has engaged in absolute cutting-edge thinking about the way we perceive the world in which we live, but she's also actually put that into practice with a remarkable series of engagements which have not uh, been warmly received by everybody, but which have changed the way we look at ourselves and the way we look at the world, including uh, the establishment of legal actions for sexual harassment, uh, the pushing for uh, ordinances recognizing pornography as a civil rights violation, uh, those of us who remember the abuse that was heaped on Claire Short for developing a modest version of that in this country can try and empathise with the degree of pressure that that brought on our speaker tonight some years ago. And more recently, but dramatically, uh, the legal action which established rape as an act of genocide. So these are remarkable achievements which are not in the spare time of an academic, but which flow from the qualities that this academic brings to her professional life, activism and intellect. And uh, tonight, the lecture title is Women's Status, or Status, Men's States. And I have got a minimalist chair role. I'll tell you what it is. After I've introduced uh, Professor McKinnon, I'm going to sit down. And then after 30 minutes, I'm going to get up. And don't worry, this is at the request of the speaker. And I'm going to place a discreet note in front of her which says 15 minutes to go. And then, uh, if it all goes according to plan, the uh, opening remarks of 45 minutes or so will, will end at 45 minutes. 
And then our speaker will receive questions and comments, I'm sure, as well, observations. And that will proceed until uh, my second big moment, which is uh, when I say at about five minutes to eight, I think it might be time to think about wrapping up. So I'll be practicing that line later. Uh, uh, and, and, and then I'll bring the proceedings to an end. So pretty minimal from me, and it's not me you want to hear from. It is our speaker, a uh, big round of applause, really, for Professor Catherine McKinnon. everyone. It's wonderful to be here. Um, thanks for those of you who just waved just now. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like a football stadium, you know, <laughs> as we call it football. Uh, thank you for that warm and spirited introduction. Uh, I'm delighted to be here in this space for thought uh, to celebrate the, uh, be part of celebrating the opening of this new academic building. Uh, at LSE, and I trust that it won't always be like the Pont Neuf uh, in Paris, uh, which has been Neuf for about 500 years, uh, and that at some point, uh, although it will always be new uh, and fresh, that we'll have perhaps a proper name. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's it's beautiful to be in this its space. I, I love it, and I love these colors. I think the gray and red are splendid. Um, so uh, I'm going to be exploring with you tonight uh, a set of ideas about human rights law and international politics um, that will revolve around a set of themes, four to be specific, that cohere and cut across current developments in the international human rights of women. The examples I'll be drawing upon will also serve as a, while I'm giving you a bird's eye analytic overflight and perspective on the developments in women's international human rights, uh, I'll also be illustrating a lot of work that I have participated in with others um, much of it with my organization, Equality Now, uh, which has uh, one of our offices here in London. And being that many of these examples are things I've worked on, I am highly distractible uh, by any of you to talk about details uh, and give stories uh, and so on. So you won't know anything about any of these things, as well as anything at all uh, that I talk about, feel free to do that. Um, many of the instances I'll be drawing upon grew out of the Bosnian and Rwandan genocides and their unfolding reverberations throughout the international system. And all of these developments, as I see them, have extended through the post-September 11th period, uh, which I realize is uh, figures larger uh, in the American imagination uh, than it does perhaps in that of the rest of the world, but uh, I do want to say that I see these developments uh, extending really across that 
what to some people is a watershed or threshold uh, and to me is not. Um, and I'll be proposing that the examples immediately select, uh, that are admittedly selective, um, will reveal a cutting edge of a new model of human rights in the making. Uh, this is my argument. And at the same time, they exemplify the gender theory that I practice. Um, okay, in the last 25 or 30 years, we have seen women's resistance to the denial of our humanity on a global scale. Um, this denial of women's humanity has a double edge. One edge says uh, that sex-specific violations are not commonly committed, and women have dedicated ourselves to exposing the commonness, the ordinariness, the normality of those violations, and thus overcoming that denial. And the other edge of this denial is that when violations are sex-specific, that they do not violate humanity. In other words, the hu that women have no humanity that is violated when we are violated in sex-specific ways. And women have dedicated ourselves to overcoming that denial also. That is, in the, its affirmative form, that when women are violated as women, that it is actually our humanity that is violated. Now, women's resistance to the denial of our humanity in this double-edged form can be seen to have been changing the form and content of the transnational human rights paradigm, converging with other developments, of course, in many other areas. Now, there's a larger tide uh, of which this is a wave, and that larger tide is overcoming denial of atrocities. Uh, this is a well-worn path to becoming human, as I call it. Now, the usual form of the denial of atrocities, uh, in parallel to my initial uh, analysis about the denial uh, that women are, are, is over, are overcoming, those two denials. The usual form of it is, just to put it in very simple terms, is that if it's really happening, it isn't so bad, and if it's really so bad, it isn't happening. Um, and overcoming that denial um, is the path to becoming human in the world, and by becoming human, I take human as a normative social status. Uh, not an existential fact uh, or something that can in any sense simply be taken for granted. With setbacks, I see women as precisely at the midpoint of this process, this process of claiming full, complete, true human status. Um, we are absolutely in the middle of this. Um, and it's also a process that is changing human rights themselves. Of course, surely it's expanding them, uh, but it's also beginning to make it a more honest term. That is, if you have a thing you call human, uh, that even in its 
uh, aspirational form when broken down applies in fact only to half of that group. It's, it's a dishonest term, right? So it's beginning to become a more honest term. So my central question is going to be tonight with you, what in gendered terms is the distinctive role of the international in women's still unequal status and treatment, in its actualities and in its possibilities? Now, here, I am assuming uh, that the state is a male institution. And I mean this not only demographically, that is to say it is largely and in general run by men, which is true, uh, but not very interesting, I, I think, um, at least not to me ultimately. In other words, that you can learn things from head counting, uh, but then the question is what more does it mean? In other words, what more do you learn once you've done your demographic analysis and discovered uh, the biology of the people who occupy the place? What else does it do to the place they occupy that that is their simple biology? Um, so I'm not going to be analyzing the state as male demographically, um, which, as I say, is boring, but um, and flat, as it, as it were. Um, but rather, I'm going to be analyzing it socially and politically. That is to say, not in terms of sex, but in terms of gender. Uh, and by this, that is analyzing the state as male. And this is a big deal to assume, it turns out. And you know, you, it's amazing to say something that is so simple in your mind and then realize what it is you actually have to say uh, to make that be real, I mean, to make that be true. What, what is it to say the state is male? Um, and this is going to be a mouthful uh, to which a lot of uh, people, the content of which uh, a lot of people have contributed, including uh, my colleague Christine Chinkin of this faculty, um, real depth of scholarship. Uh, all right, here's what I mean by something being male, anything being male, something the structures and actions of which are driven by an ideology predicated on an epistemic angle of vision with values, attitudes, and behaviors that go along with it based on the concrete status location of the male sex in society, members of which, with variations, occupy a superior position in gender hierarchy. Now this, folks, is what I will mean by the term male. It, <laughs> it produces, when, ha when the state is being in this way, what I call the state as male, meaning an institution centrally animated by what Kate Millett first called sexual politics. Now, male in this sense of male dominance, superior position in male hierarchy, uh, I want to also flag as not an epithet. It is not name-calling, although it's a bit finger-pointy, we concede, nor, nor is it simply trivially true. That is something that, you know, you've said that now, but, but there is no second sentence. You know, I mean, that's what something is that's just trivially, trivially true. Uh, nor is the term about anything like political correctness. Um, but I do think that people might be forgiven for not understanding in what sense this term is often being used. That is, 
it's a subtle analysis. It's complex. It is still largely under-theorized even at this point, and it's highly in its fundamental. That is, it challenges and changes how a great many things are understood if you look at institutions, and in this case the state, and I will be looking at law, which is already getting narrower, right? It, things, institutions, the state is only one of many. The law is one operative institution in that. And so I will just talk about it a little more since we have a little space for thought here. Um, not everything men do is male in this systemic, political, analytic sense. That is, distinctively determined and marked by their mem membership uh, in the dominant sex. Any more than everything middle class people do is bourgeois, or everything white people do is marked by their whiteness, although actually it's damn close, or everything that children do is childish. Um, male, as I use it, means exhibiting or contributing to male dominance as a political system. Not everything men do is that, but everything that men do has to be that. Right? It, it, there is no inevitability to or necessity for things they do being that, and many things men do isn't that, um, although we could use more of that. Now, given that states are demonstrably male in a whole number of ways, and I argued this in a book published in 1989, so I'm feeling with all this white hair, I can kind of draw on that. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not an uncontroversial proposition, but I am assuming it, as I said. My question right now is, all right, given that states are demonstrably male in a whole set of ways, I will talk about these ways, is the international system a counterbalance to this? Or is the international system meta-male? That is, kicked up to a higher level, the same thing operating uh, on a bigger plane. Now, if the state has a gender so that the state, through its distinctive instrument, law, sees and treats women the way men in society see and treat women, which was the argument of my book, To the Feminist Theory of the State, that book. And the question is, does the international order, and here specifically international human rights law, confront and challenge this tendency, which is its general mission, that is to say, to confront and challenge tendencies to bias, particularly against groups of people, um, and, of, and toward noxious practices. That is its tendency to counterbalance when states do those things. That's what it's there for. Or does it reproduce, reinscribe, reinforce it at yet higher institutional levels? So put another way, even as international law and institutions exist to limit the power of individual states, which is what it's there for, it's its distinctive mandate in this world, my question is, is, does it also build upon, depend upon, and support the power of the state as such at the same time? Now, there's two prominent themes in existing international literature that connect interestingly with this question. I just want to flag these. Um, that is, one, the so-called democratic deficit and two, the so-called decline or death of the state. 
The democratic deficit idea sees national institutions as inherently more democratic than international ones, hence preferable for resolving human rights and other disputes. Viewed from the standpoint of the status of women, I think that the validity and implications of this very widely accepted assertion are questionable, and in fact, even backwards. And I'm going to be suggesting that the international, uh, although it's counterintuitive to many, is more democratic uh, when it comes to women, more democratic when it comes to women uh, than states are. And second, the state is appearing outmoded to a lot of people today. You know, there's a lot out there that says it's being superseded by institutions and forces that have bases of power that are independent of states, that cut across states. Uh, like globalization is a common one, multinational corporations is a big observation. You know, many of them have budgets larger uh, than many countries. Uh, organized crime is another one, uh, exists trans state and is more powerful than many states. Religion is another one. Um, but from the standpoint of women, this trans state dynamic has always been the case since male power is one just such force. So what that leads you to ask is, if the state is arguably being transcended in all these ways for politics among men, usually called for short politics, um, the question is whether today the masculinity of international laws, norms, and institutions is also withering away. Or is male dominance equally characteristic of present in and simply powerfully morphing itself into these transnational forms where it has been all along? In other words, all these things that now people see as transcending the state, religion, kind of male, organized crime, very male, Multinational corporations, possibly even more male. Um, in other words, if it's been there all along, but only it's only now being more visible, are we just seeing other dynamics more visibly starting to follow the lines of force of male dominance in the international arena that have been there all this time? Is that what we're seeing as this so-called death of the state in a way that is in no way undermining or undercutting the maleness of states or the maleness of the international order? It's just being called all these other things that suddenly people are noticing um, and have yet to notice masculinity. So both of these questions allow us to focus upon whether gender is a largely overlooked transnational force and dynamic, one both from the top down ensuring male dominance over women, and of some men over other men around the world, which I claim as a dynamic in male dominance. You understand now this is a theory of politics. Um, and at the same time, is it an overlooked transnational force and dynamic with women's emergence as a global force, as a group for itself? Uh, from the bottom up, challenging that dominance. So this is divided into four dimensions. 
Um, and it's these dimensions, national behavior through law, uh, I previously analyzed in gendered terms. But here's the assertion that state behavior that promotes and institutionalizes male dominance and qualifies as male in my sense has been found to do four things, and it does all these four things. One, it distinguishes public from private. I'm saying that is a male way of organizing your institutions. Two, it naturalizes difference as dominance. This is an aggressive analysis. I just want to understand that. I mean, I'm not just like making like this is an everyday deal, okay? But I am assuming this stuff, so here it is. Three, it hides coercion behind consent. C. Hobbes, C. Locke, C. all that, right? C. Kant even, uh, C. Ronald Dworkin. It obscures, <laughs> it, <laughs> footnotes available on request. It, it, it obscures, the fourth thing it does is it obscures politics, as I have been discussing it, behind morality. Endless discussion of good, bad, right, wrong, nice, not, as if this is all about values, when in fact it is all about politics, i.e. power, who has it. Okay, so I'm saying that uh, for a state to be male is to do these four things. Um, and my question is, are there dynamics that are distinguishable in the international I mean, does, does the international do all these same four things? Or even if it does them, does it have distinguishable dynamics uh, that offers more space, a potential even Archimedean lever somewhere? How do you, you know, where do you stick the lever in to move the whole world, you know? Is, is there somehow a place out there that offers a greater potential for pursuing women's status as truly human. So that's my question. Um, as to the public and private dimension, uh, the international structure can be seen as a set of inter-nesting boxes. Uh, and here, uh, the work of Christine Schinken with her colleague Hilary Charlesworth has been uh, truly highly illuminating. Her boundaries of international law, you should look at it. Um, if, if you haven't already. Um, these internesting boxes, uh, this is a gloss on, on, on some of that, uh, defined by layers and layers and layers of distinction between public and private. Uh, these distinctions include things like the hierarchy of state over civil society, the state being the public, the guy, him, civil society being the softer, her, uh, where women live, where all that women stuff takes place. Um, you know, you talk about women's, you can talk about women's issues and somehow forever, instead of seeing it as a critique of everything they all do, it gets seen as this is that women's stuff. And meantime, they go on doing what they do over here as if this wasn't happening. And we're talking about half the world in relation to the other half. Okay, so this is taking that on, all right? Um, <laughs> the relation of war and peace is another one. War is this, this place where uh, men work things out between themselves. Um, uh, peace is when war isn't happening. 
That's how they define it. Uh, women apparently are uh, born peace freaks, and you know, men uh, apparently, uh, the idea has been, uh, are you know the world's combatants. Um, and you know, this is a highly gendered distinction. Um, and you know, within the law of war, even you see distinctions between combatants and civilians. Civilians of whom are assumed to be women and children, although actually there's an awful lot of men in there. But they are feminized apparently by being in the civilian category. And combatants uh, who get to kill, by the way, and no one uh, is—it's not illegal. That's what makes you a combatant. Um, are thought of in these highly male terms, even though women serve in militaries and in armies, and Lord knows we fight. Um, another instance is the conventionally recognized generations of human rights, which take more seriously all those rights defined as public. Uh, and these public rights, these things they think of as public, amount to what empowered men think they most need against other empowered men, that is, so-called political and civil rights. Um, group rights are conventionally ranked the lowest in this hierarchy, uh, equality of which women need most, and economic and social rights, uh, this is this whole conventional thing, occupy this middle tier, but it actually happens out there. If you can put your rights in this highest tier, you're seen as having a powerful argument. You know, you have this group rights thing, and they're like, what's that? That's a sociological classification. We can't, like, give rights to, to, to groups. I'm like, watch us. All right? A lot of what is going down in the rest of this talk is called group rights. It's just, you don't call it that because you don't get them if you, if you call it that. But notice, without the highest, you know, without these rights, without group rights, without economic and social rights, your political and civil rights are virtually unexercisable by you. They are not meaningfully accessed. You can't, they aren't of any use much. You do need them, you have to have them. But it'll take you a couple hundred years, minimally, to have them be of any earthly use, right? So they've got this hierarchy like that. These are the most important, these are the heaviest, these are the highest, these are the real rights. And meantime, it's in a completely flipped relation to what women most need. So this is not a coincidence. I, and I don't want to leave the impression that uh, that the legal system buys into these, this hierarchy per se. I mean, all these rights are interconnected. They're all in all the, all the, uh, the, the covenant in, in the big conventions. They all mention all of them and say this is completely interlocking and they all are mutually interdependent. But I'm just talking about the, the, the what we call in the U.S. The, the street wrap of these words, I mean, which has to do with how they normally actually are played out and work out. And the high, there is a hierarchy in the head. Of, of, of how that takes place. Okay, but it's in jurisdiction, and all this is about how I came to love jurisdiction. Um, it's a really interesting subject, and it isn't just for lawyers. Um, it's in jurisdiction, which revolves around the concept of sovereignty, the state, the state being sovereign, even in this international system, where this public private distinction becomes most quintessentially male, in my sense. That is, sovereignty structures international justice procedurally. They call it procedural so that you don't see the substantive hand in it. Procedural is supposed to mean just technique, uh, just a empty 
neutral structure. Flee when people tell me this. It, it's, reach for your wallet. I mean, it's, you know, it's, make sure you have all your fingers when you shake hands with an empty procedure. Um, it's, these things are highly substantive. It's on the, submer the submerged principle is moral power at home. That is the submerged substantive principle in this thing they call jurisdiction. What it does is prioritize without making it possible even to see the hand uh, of, this is the invisible jurisdictional hand, if you will, of, of male power at work. It prioritizes the place where women have the least power and men have the most as the original fundamental place, priority place, where women's most distinctive injuries by men are to be addressed. Now understand that. I mean, this is what a real hierarchy of rights looks like. The way sovereignty works is men respect other men's control in their own domains, here the domain, the domain being women and children, in the hope and expectation of reciprocity. That is, those other men will respect their dominion and control in their own domain, uh, otherwise known as the moral bond. That's what this is. It's, what it has meant for women is that women's best hope of getting out from under men at home has been to appeal to men who are spatially distant from, therefore hopefully less controlled and identified with, the men who violate them at home, which is where they are most violated. Now this need of women to, again as we say in the U.S., get out of Dodge, you know, it's like to get away from home in order to get some rights is exactly contrary to how jurisdiction is structured in law all over the world, with the more private close to home jurisdiction always being favored over the most public and distant one. Now states' rights in federal systems are one example, margins of appreciation in European law is another example as is a priority on national over international resolutions in international systems, including the International Criminal Court. Now it's in this context that we can appreciate the ruling in the United States in the case of Kadich against Karadzic, uh, a case that I brought on behalf of uh, violated Bosnian, uh, Muslim and Croat women and children, which permitted sexually violated women to seek remedies under international law for genocidal rape in another country against the self-declared leader of a world regime at home. And it, what this was was not only a substantive victory in recognizing genocidal rape as an act of genocide for the first time, it was a jurisdictional victory because women got to go to another country and get their rape back there recognized as a violation of international human rights. Um, the difference in dominance axis, uh, the second. The equality law of most international intergovernmental institutions and regional systems and most domestic legal systems other than Canada continues to employ this purportedly neutral sameness and difference model. 
the Aristotelian likes alike, unlikes, unlike model, which again in practice is not neutral at all. Uh, far less does it produce equality. We've been working with this for about 2,000 years. Um, and equality is something we do not have. Uh, but the recognition that hierarchical inequality is not based on difference, and that equality does not actually require sameness, that is, seeing the built-in limits of formal equality, otherwise known as real equality, priority level equality, uh, the Western equality approach since Aristotle, and it's all over the international system, and it's all over the world, actually thanks to British colonialism. Um, animates, this rule uh, is animating some international legal developments and, and legal changes in some countries under the aegis of a transnational influence. Uh, within states, we can see real strides having been made in Canada and South Africa beyond this approach and toward a substantive sex equality, that is, against gender hierarchy, not against biological difference, the former being the issue, the latter not. Um, they are measuring laws and policies in a context that recognizes the reality of social subordination. We see it in India's equality thinking beginning to happen. We also see it in Sweden's de facto equality approach to prostitution, which decriminalizes prostituted people and strongly criminalizes not only pimps, but also, we call Johns, you call printers? <laughs> the men who buy the women to use for sex? Yeah. Oh, wow, okay. Um, <laughs> But, you know, two of the strongest examples of this are that is substantive equality are in, in the world are regional instruments. That is the Convention of Belém de Pará, which is against violence against women, and the African Protocol on the Rights of Women. We also see it beginning to operate, this equality model, uh, sometimes in the CEDAW Committee. And I think we can begin to say that that committee is coming to recognize that male dominance is the real meaning of the problem called discrimination against women. Uh, contrary to a whole set of and pull of state practices that operate as an undertow on that definition. So with these developments that grasp the substance of women's deprivation of humanity in reality, and in particular its sexual and reproductive substance, which has previously been called differences, for which in the conventional equality approach, worse treatment is permitted consistent with the mainstream equality rule. Uh, we are seeing the advancement of sex equality as a peremptory international norm. Now, I totally don't take it for granted that no country out there in an international fora now says it supports sex discrimination. This is not a flag they want to run up and salute, okay? It, they even, and they reject even more unanimously the idea of the biological inferiority of women to men. This is also uh, to be uh, recognized. And even more strongly than that, is a condemnation, I'm talking recognition, condemnation, professed norms, uh, of the violent subordination of women by men. There are a lot of people out there who say, yes, we do it, and you know, we 
avoid doing it. Uh, now, you may think I have really low standards. Um, but uh, these things are not to be taken for granted, especially since uh, in practice there is largely the opposite. Um, we also see the international tribunals recognizing these issues, and we and notice another interesting dynamic, and that is that the realities of sex inequality are often recognized under any rubric other than equality. Uh, sometimes in quite powerful ways in the international system. It's also true in Canada, by the way. We win case after case after case in Canada. They just don't want to call it equality. Um, although sometimes they do. Internationally, um, in the trafficking area is a particularly uh, apex example. Um, apparently it doesn't threaten male dominance as much uh, to give women certain rights so long as they aren't called equality rights. So it's moving toward recognition in any case, particularly if you take into account these actual advances in sex equality, even if they don't call them that, uh, as a peremptory norm at the highest level of international principle, and perhaps even approaching a violation of customary international law. That would be the day. Uh, I even have one site for that. Uh, but uh, that it's, it's going in that direction, I think. So despite these signal flares of hope, I would say, women's second-class status before law continues to be concealed and therefore maintained by a whole set of pervasive practices around the world. And these include my other two dimensions, that is, construing forms of power and coercion as consent, particularly in sexual relationships. It is as if women, who are pervasively unequal to men, can simply be assumed to be free in the sexual context, as if one can simply be free without being equal. Men write volumes, libraries, on the question of can you be free without being equal in every other context. Right? You even mention this question about women in the sexual context, uh, and you know they don't want to publish your book. Okay, um, that's one uh, dimension, and the other uh, final one is the tendency of law to present functioning divisions of power as a discourse. Thank you, postmodernists, in ideas of right and wrong, hence open to different values, or cultural preferences, or choice, or demanding tolerance. Uh, in other words, equality becomes a kind of nice policy idea. It would be nice uh, of you, or were you to go along with this idea of equality in, in your laws, as opposed to a reality that is being denied its recognition in your law. That's the distinction I'm making here. In other words, if women are in fact actual human equals to men, it is one thing to say it would be nice if you treated them equally, and it's another thing to say it is false if you do not treat them equally. And it's not that this values level, this is really the Kantian level, um, isn't important, and it isn't. I'm not saying it isn't a step toward real equality to get people to say yes, that would be a nice thing to do. That's a good idea. That's a value we approve, right? It isn't that that isn't a step toward it. I'm just saying it's nowhere close to the level of step of saying that it is false to the reality 
of a group that is half the human race, or actually more in many instances, not to treat them as equally human. Uh, that it is wrong, not in the moral sense, it is wrong in the factual sense. What I'm saying is the refusal to recognize that, I think, is undermining uh, women's politics around the world. If you see women's equality as a fact denied its realization in policy and practice, you are in a completely different position to argue with and deal with and respond to things that are called cultural and the like. There isn't a single treatment of women as unequals anywhere in the world that isn't part of somebody's culture. It's all cultural. So why cultural gets to be a defense is beyond me. Um, it isn't that some people's cultures are better than others. It's that nobody's culture is equal. And you know, those of us who criticize all cultures as unequal are, in a, are on a nice level ground uh, <laughs> to criticize them all, uh, having spent you know, many years uh, criticizing our own. Um, in solidarity with women around the world. So, now the motion brought about by women along these lines, um, which have actually been largely civil society initiatives in their origin, um, is producing this new model of human rights, and here are its central features. One, recognition that other than state actors are often both perpetrators and victims of human rights violations. This is pretty new. Two, that injuries to one's humanity are often group-based, even when the individual is harmed. That is, sex discrimination is called a, quote, individual right. It's not. It's a collective right embodied in a person. You're not a woman individually, quite honestly. You're a woman as a member of a group. I mean, that group is made up of individuals, each with all our particularities, all of our particularities. That is what it is to be a woman, to be, to embody multiple particularities uh, in the social status position assigned to the female sex. Okay. Three, that civil society, not only the state, is part of the problem and therefore must be part of the solution. That is the third element of this model. And fourth, that civil remedies can be more transformative, hence restorative, than standard criminal approaches. As opposed to the view, for instance, that deprivation of liberty, i.e. criminal incarceration, is what a serious system does to acts it takes seriously, which I regard as the male view. It isn't that I think they shouldn't be locked up. It's that um, if, you ha if you have equality, then liberty appears to be, to you, the greatest possible deprivation. If you don't have equality, then you don't even already have access to liberty. In other words, they've always thought, you know, you give us liberty and we'll all have equality. Well, look, the more liberty you give dominant people, the more free they are to subordinate subordinated people. But create, this, I'm, this is a serious position about the relation between liberty and equality, right? But if people have I'm saying equality, then they will be free. And then we can start thinking in a different way about liberty and its deprivation. Um, so this goes around the other way. 
Um, I call this a woman's model of human rights, but not because it is exclusive to one sex. We've had enough of that. Um, but because it's predicated on the experiences, complex as they are, of one half of humanity's deprivation of human rights by the other half. Uh, together with those of a good many men, actually, uh, and many children. So what we've learned from this is that women are truly a global group in the sense that the distinctive social definition, treatment, and status of women as a sex relative to men can be recognized in its diverse forms all over the world. In other words, gender inequality is a global system. And what that does is once you realize that national particularities in the form of states give some of the forms that gender inequality in its global nature takes, the exemption of culture, which is legally ratified as sovereign jurisdiction, that means some of those forms are protected by their sovereignty. The rest of those forms are natural. Okay, that means if they're simply transnational, they're called natural. And if they're specific to a certain culture, they're called particular and cultural. You realize this is how you protect those things that apply to all women as well as those things to apply to each and every and only someone. It's called, it renders every form of oppression known to women as either a cultural universal or a cultural particularity. Meaning, respectively, we can't or shouldn't do anything about them. If they're a cultural universal, we can't do anything about them. If they're a cultural particularity, we shouldn't do anything about them. In other words, we, nothing should be done, can be done about them. But if you see women's world as the globe, it stands in inherent tension with the subsuming of women and their rights in and to states, which from the standpoint of democratic values have not represented their interests. And it's very interesting uh, that they seem to be getting represented internationally. And one of the reasons, I think, is distance. That is, I finally figured out what men mean by objectivity. Um, say you have 35 years, so listen up. Um, <laughs> it means I don't identify with that man, therefore I can be fair. That's what they mean. <laughs> so what it means is, this is why on all these four dimensions, the international arena has been the place of some of the deepest and broadest changes for women that we can observe taking place. It's going further and faster than in any single country. And the question is why? And I think it's distance. That is, this attenuates the male bond somewhat. It reduces impunity and sometimes corruption. Yes, I do have a gender theory of corruption. It's called self-dealing, dealing at home, giving to yours. It doesn't mean you know, women don't do it. It means it is male in the gendered sense. And I think, too, I'd like to point out that it has been women's insistence on institutionalizing address specifically to violence against women that has made women's resistance to their status and treatment the cutting edge of change in international human rights around the turn of the 21st century. And this sexual violation business is not merely an example. In my view, it is 
not only the social ground zero of the inequality of the sexes, an argument I haven't made tonight, but I do, I do think. It is also the ultimate challenge to law in its male incarnation. Sexual violation is considered private, but it is shared. It is truly public and it structures the public order in important ways. It is widely attributed to sexual difference, but it enacts dominance. It is rationalized as consensual, but it is coerced. And it is endlessly moralized, but actually it is sexually political. And it's my view that it is recognition of human rights against this distinctive violation that is beginning to give back the humanity that the rapist takes away. Beginning with intimate inviolability and seeking humanity, it has been women's global consciousness of our human status against this particular denied atrocity that is exploding across the still potent artifice of state's frontiers, erupting through the fissures of state subordination and rising from the ashes of state's collapse. Thank you. so much and thank you for being such a as we say in the practice of law live bench you know it's a group of people that you're talking to who are there who are present who feed back to you uh, you you know you can tell some of what you're thinking but now I want to know more in words what you're thinking so tell me yes yes you I think we might just wait, wait for the microphone, sorry. Yeah, We're waiting for which? Oh, microphone. So everyone can hear you. Mm -hmm. um, I was wondering if you could talk about the idea of the proposal for a UN agency for women. Are you a supporter of it and, and why? Well, uh, you know, there, there is one. Um, the, you know, there's the CEDAW committee. Um, the Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women has its own, et cetera. And it has been moving increasingly uh, centrally into the UN system, including now physically. Um, and, you know, so these ideas revolve in their institutional form, revolve around what some of you may have encountered as whether there should be a women's studies department or whether we should just mainstream women's studies and everybody should do it. And if we have a separate place, does that mean it will be marginalized, ghettoized? Um, and so I'm just to identify the issue in, in the institutional question. Um, and, you know, we have uh, women's human rights being considered as part of the rights of human beings, supposedly, um, all across the UN system, um, including uh, in the, uh, in, in uh, and then we also see a, 
influence, including by the transfer of personnel, uh, from some of the uh, specifically women-identified human rights entities into, when those women go into the human rights entities, then we get motion for women called human under the, the uh, gender-neutral rubric um, as well. So what I think is, you know, that it's a complicated, it, it, it's a complicated question, but I think myself that whenever there is uh, something with dignity that women can own, uh, a piece of ground that we are, that is called ours, uh, that it's, it's good to have. Uh, we should take that. Uh, I see them as power bases, not ghettos, but you have to fight that. But at least you have a place to stand to, to fight from. Uh, this may be, you know, some people may regard this as uh, antiquated. Um, in other words, now we can, you know, move into the mainstream and we have mainstreaming and so on. Um, but you know what a mainstreaming so often means? It means, you know, now uh, we're so beyond all these problems that we can have a man running the women's rights office. I mean, it's not that you can't, right? It, it, of course you can. And so, you know, a person can be powerful and excellent and uh, get much done under those circumstances, but there are an awful lot of qualified women uh, for, for those as, as well. Um, and so I think it's a pretty good idea, um, but it doesn't mean that it's any substitute for having not EPA, you know, um, in, as the Co High Commissioner for Human Rights, or having, I mean, we notice the way the international courts are set up. They have uh, weighted average, you know, weighted numbers in, inside them so that uh, so many women uh, need to get elected. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm for those things, um, just because, as I said, I think we're exactly at halfway. Half being halfway means you've come very far, but just far enough to have anything you could lose be really dangerous, because you're not far enough yet uh, to, to have, to truly be able to defeat a powerful backlash. And therefore, I think any further institutionalization of things for women is, is a fine idea. And that just may be, again, overly simple in its end, but uh, I, I, that would be my view. Do you think that's wrong, or do you have a different idea? Yeah, no, you couldn't have. Uh, I took no position on, on things of that nature. Yeah, but I, I do think that. Although it's, you know, it's by no means obvious. And it's, you know, it's a good insight. And it's a question that requires real subtlety in thinking it through. I mean, I don't regard, as I say, women as a biological group. Um, but women are I thought of as being socially, biologically defined by, you know, a social set of norms that, you know, keep women second class. And so long as that's the case, I think we can use an institutional basis. And so yet a further one, I think, is all right. So long as it does, you know, everyone remembers that, I mean, there's plenty of women out there who don't want to be identified with women's issues anyway. And, you know, it's important that those women, as well as some who do, uh, go out there and be everybody instead of the woman's woman, you know? And that, that will happen because women are ambitious. Women know what real success looks like. It looks like being in a position that is a male position. 
right? So, you know, there will be women who will continue to do that, and they, they have to and need to. You know, I just want some of them for us as well. But, you know, I don't want all of the women's women to go in the women's thing and all the men's women to go in the men's things. Um, and I think some people think that if you have a women's thing, that all those women will go to that thing. Um, and, and I just think that if you have that thing, there will be more space for more women, especially women who identify as women who was before. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, give it to anyone. Give, give it to this person on the aisle. I, I completely take your point about the nature of objectivity huh. and why international law would, 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 would work. But what I'm not clear about is if a decision that makes sense gets made by some international body, what, what sanctions are, how, do you, how does it have effects back home, as it were? In the country where, from which it emanated. Yeah, see, of course, first of all, this is no different for any international law question. Oh, really? So it's no particular thing. You know, I think international law has been feminized uh, out there in the legal system because it isn't backed by force. Um, and so everyone wants to know international what? It's like, how is this stuff real? I mean, if you don't have an army, uh, how does this, you know, <laughs> matter? And I would just point out that, you know, first of all, the downside to understanding this is that a lot of women who have never been physically assaulted uh, just go right along with male-dominant definitions of things. So they were never forced. It just was that way. So apparently there's forcing things other than, than physical. There are other forms of force than physical. This happens in, you know, the way rape happens too all the time and isn't recognized as force. So there's that. And the other upside is that most international law decisions are respected uh, around the world by states, even though, uh, other than actually the US. Um, but most governments uh, are good international laws, international citizens instead of thinking they are the world, uh, like the U.S. does, and um, goes along, they go along with international decisions, and so they comply with them. It appears men don't want to look bad to other men, you see. And, it, it, you know, and calling them up on the carpet in front of other men has more potential than you would think it has. Um, yeah, it's kind of cool. Um, and, and not to be overlooked as a form of, of power, as something to be used. But the other thing I would just point out is that nobody ever asks this question about domestic laws. We've had laws that say equality for decades, and we do not have it. So who's enforcing these laws? What's with this law thing? <laughs> How come everybody acts like if you have a law, then that's really going to make something be real in a different way? Well, they're not being enforced. We, you know, we have a thing in the United States called the Man Act, M-A-N-N, and it's about um, transportation of, of uh, people across state lines, that's to get their jurisdictional thing in there, um, for, uh, for prostitution. I don't know, I, but apparently never I've asked people, there isn't a memo that goes out from Washington that says, do not enforce the Man Act, but they do not. They just don't. They just decided it's low priority. 
I call this like the dead letter dynamic. I mean, they've made it a non-existent law. Why doesn't anybody say who's going to enforce this law? Where is that discussion domestically? Where is the discussion domestically about all the laws that we have, including in countries, you know, they act like this is about failed states and corrupt regimes. You know, that's why they can pass these big international things, because they're not going to do it. It's just going to make them look good. And in the United States, this is how it goes in the U.S. We can't pass these things because, see, we actually do the laws we have. And I'm like, oh, do we? <laughs> do we? I mean, we mandate equal integrated education on the basis of race in the United States. We do not have it. Right? We, you know, we mandate equal pay for equal work. We absolutely do not have it. And, you know, sometimes there's nice technical reasons why they've interpreted these laws out of existence. But that's a better day than the day where they just never do anything with these laws. So they're not doing anything with a lot of them domestically either. So let's not ask when you look at the international system and go, where's your army? How, why should we take this stuff seriously? There's no force behind this. You know, act as though domestically everything that is law is actually happening, even though there is force behind it, because it isn't happening. So I think that, you know, there's something bigger than force. I, don't, I mean, in, enforcement matters. I don't want to act like it doesn't. It does. But there's something bigger than that. It's called legitimacy. You know, it's called making people think that there really is something wrong with the way they're doing things. And, you know, bringing something to bear on them that gets them to see that they just can't keep doing the way they've been doing. We're watching you. You know, you're a sex bigot. You look bad. You know, that can be as powerful or more so, you know, than if you don't do it like this, we will invade. But they work that system out from six ways to Christmas. They know how to keep you from invading. What they haven't figured out is how to keep themselves from looking bad from us. And I think it's a real form of power that we have. Um, give one to hear. Thank you. It's, um, it's really good to have a women's woman. Oh, so Quite the distinction. I sort of, I, I probably should now cringe at that and like say I'm going to take back the real American or something. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm so happy to be here with in real America. Um, you know, it's, no, wait, I, you know, this is an identification thing. Anybody's welcome to, to buy into it. Um, but I'm talking about her. Go ahead. Well, you see, my question is about Palin. I wanted to ask you what kind of a woman you think she is. Well, the question is what? What kind of a woman do you think Sarah Palin is? One with a lot of great potential. <laughs> Actually, she, um, I work for her education, but, <laughs> but, you know, she, she's got a real feel for the reality of things. Um, I admire her a lot, actually. 
um, she like she's actually warm. She actually connects. I've never seen this in the president of the United States before. We've never seen it. We've seen you know brilliant, fabulous, competent women uh, like Hillary Clinton, for instance, but who actually are warm, but not who connect the way she does. And it isn't just because you know she's she's not you know. I mean, she's not doing trailer trash connection. You know, she's not sort of, it, it, I mean, do not underestimate this. This woman is talented, she's gifted, and I'm not just saying, you know, therefore she's dangerous. Um, you know, I also just am hating the way she, misogyny is mobilizing uh, t t to go after this woman. I can't stand it, and, you know, the liberals are high on that list. Um, so I, I think she's phenomenal, is the truth, and um, I think she has a long way to go uh, to be qualified for the Vice President of the United States, but um, she's, she's an amazing woman, and uh, I admire her very much, and uh, I just am hoping that she will grow more. Uh, in the now larger pond that she's in, um, and you know, taking more and learn more because she's smart and good at it. And you know, but like for me, I, I I just absolutely say though, I absolutely abhor her in human rights politics. She really needs to get a clue that you know, like obliterating. Uh, I mean, she, she doesn't need it to eat. This is not, she's not doing survival hunting, you know. Um, and, you know, I actually have some respect for her abortion politics in that she's the first person out there with a, that is called for a life position who actually is consistent about it uh, in the national political stage. Um, you know, if, if your issue is what they call life, which you know, can mean uh, that a fertilized egg has more rights than a woman, depending on how, you know how you how far you go with it. Um, but if that is your issue, then it doesn't matter how the child was conceived. And she's the first person who has bit that bullet on the national stage. Um, the other thing is, I, I have to admit, having somewhat more sympathy for women having a political position uh, than men. With men, I just want to say mind your own business. Um, and you know, with women, there's a bit of that too, in the sense that she's not in other women's business when she has it as a policy position, but then she hasn't been that aggressive about it as a policy position. Uh, I worry about her creationism ideas, but then again, you know, the left is pretty, the liberals have been misrepresenting it. I mean, I just decided I was going to do a thing to tell you should wait until I heard her say it. And so then I went and listened to her 2006 debates and so on. And, you know, her position about creationism is that it should be taught as something about which there is a debate in connection with evolution. It's another position. Now, that is in science class or in civics, uh, was not disclosed. Right? But, you know, she's, she's not saying uh, we're going to teach children that, um, you know, that there are human footprints next to that dinosaur back there. 
chasing it, you know, because they prefer it in Arizona. Um, so, anyway, I mean, I obviously have a lot of differences with her on a policy level, um, but I'm, uh, I'm very excited by her presence, and uh, I have, a, I mean, I think she has changed something in American politics, just by the way she is doing what she's doing and the way she's doing it. Thank you. Mm -hmm. She also, by the way, goes around respecting the women. She respected Geraldine Farrell and Hillary Clinton. She got paid for it, and she stood there and smiled. You know, she said she knew she didn't take it back. You know, she talks about other countries in kind of weird ways, and then she says, you know, it's like, and they, they hate America, they don't like this, they don't like that, they don't like our political fights. We have a national, you know, women want to fight because they're saying, you know, they don't like our women's rights. Like this, this is a this is good. This is fine. I mean, don't let her win, but it's, it's fine. <laughs> ah, give it to this person. Sure. Thanks. Um, firstly, thank you for a very inspiring lecture. It's left me completely guilt-ridden for not choosing. Um, PhD topic closer to feminism, my passion, and that's basically what my question relates to. Mm -hmm. You talked about how women's issues are always on the side, marginalized while everyone goes on doing um, what they do, mm -hmm. um, and maleness continues. And on the academic level, I've um, felt a lot of resistance um, every time I say the word feminism. Um, and you obviously have celebrity status, which I totally think you deserve. Um, seriously, I have to admit it, I'm not going to do it. Don't tell the back. But I'm just wondering how you've dealt um, on a personal level um, with the obstacles that you faced in the God. academic world God. to things like the marginalization of women's studies. For example, feminist legal theory, LSE, when I was here, was an optional subject, whereas the heart-talking debate was the first thing we had to do, forced to do, whereas feminist legal theory was just marginalized. So I'm just wondering how to deal with that, it's something I've struggled with. Yeah, I mean, increasingly all those, you know, jurisprudence books have some of an extract from me. Um, they take out all the things they call, quote, the examples, um, and leave what they regard as the, quote, theory, which shows that they have not understood that this is a substantive theory. This is not an abstract theory with the following examples, actually. This is a substantive theory, which is a different kind of theory as theory, that comes out of these actual real-world instances, right? So sometimes it's there. Um, I started doing this in 1970, and as the director of graduate studies put it, Okay, people around here think that you're very bright, but they also think that you're just a little bit crazy. <laughs> End of quote. Um, and it seems that taking these issues seriously, it's all that I got for taking rape seriously as a, as a dynamic that might eliminate other dynamics like what went on in class. You know? um, 
And I know that continues to be the case. Um, what I think is that women's, you know, that all men's, that, that what you have to do when you go to school, you shouldn't think you had to do this because you're paying all this money, but that you really need to fight to do your own work. Do not waste your life. You don't have time. I, that was the one thing I knew. I don't know why I knew it. I never thought I'd even live to be this age, which is way great. What a, you know, I mean, what a surprise, right? <laughs> you can, like, blast yourself out at something and crash into walls, you know, for a bunch of years and still be standing. But um, I just think you can waste your life or you can do what is your real genius. You can actually make the contribution that you're here to make and not waste your time, not one minute of it. And I don't say that to make you feel guilty. I just say it to, uh, to be at your back um, about making the real contribution that you have to make. And you know, if that is in this and with these ideas, um, then, you know, do it, whatever, you know, I, that's what I think, that, that's what I did, and I can't say the 12 years of unemployment is to be encouraged as an outcome, um, you know, which was before I got my first real job, I knew they living on the road like this, when I was paid to speak, um, and now I don't have to be, uh, because I make my living teaching. Uh, but, you know, making a living speech to speech um, is uh, a good way to have more health insurance in the United States. Um, maybe we'll change that. But, you know, and, and it, um, it affects everything about your life. Your relationships, whether you can have a family, um, whether you have a home. I mean, you know, it's important to ask yourself, what matters to you? Uh, where do you live? You know, what, what, what do you really need to have? Uh, and you know, I don't think anyone should do without those things, uh, but you need to. Um, and I wish it were different. I wish it had changed more than it has. And there are more people now who do it. But even the people who do it at a very high level, most of them do it and something else that is recognized as real in the academy. Right? Something without a gendered label that is, in fact, men's thing that is that thing. It just doesn't have a gendered label. And all these libraries you know, are like men's studies on the following, but they're just called philosophy and history and economics and politics. Um, and you call something women's studies in the world, all of a sudden you're being all male and partial and particular and specific and, you know, just... I mean, nobody even seems to realize that this is a broad-scale critique of that whole library. Or the extent to which they do, they don't want it around. Uh, so it's either, you know, so big, it's so hugely challenging that... I mean, academics seem to be these very insecure people. And you know, it's you're, you're no seriously. You're, you're told that this is where freedom happens, and this is a space for thought. Now we're happening right now. You know, when you start talking about academia as it, as itself, you realize that you actually do have some freedom uh, to, to think about. Okay, but 
I have found much more receptivity to my views in courts, in legislatures. Uh, the people who, in fact, what I've realized is my method is um, I'm working in the world with some real thing. Something happens, and then I think about this woman needs this. These women have to do that. You know, this is not going to work this way. You know, we smash at it. You know, we push at it. We do things. All together, we do them. Uh, the courts go, you know, that actually solves a problem we've had for a while. It, it actually recognizes something that, that's real. We recognize it. These people are in the reality business. Academics are not. Okay? So then, I started to go, you know, it, I think I want to like, talk to people about this thing. So I go around and I talk to people about this thing. People tape that. They send me the tape. I write it down. I go, you know, this looks like something written. So I write, I mean, that's that. Feminism Unmodified are all those talks I gave in the world when I had no job. And somebody taped. Put footnotes on it, they'll publish it. Um, so, and then also they can't mess it up because you say, hey, look, this is a, a talk I gave, see? You can't, like, change it all around. It, it, it was given this way, and I'm publishing this speech. That's what you, you know, you accept this, that is what you're publishing. And then they can't go and, you know, make it sound like no human ever said it or anybody, when they read it, can't hear someone talking, right? So, you know, that is just a methodology that, that I developed, and then you publish those things, and then all of a sudden you discover, like 15, 20 years later, when somebody does the data, um, that that is, you know, one of the most widely cited books in the English language on a legal subject. It's like, good Lord, who would have ever thought? I mean, the way you were treated, you, you never would have believed it. And as a matter of fact, the article that I published that is the basis for total feminist theory of the state, the year it was published was the most highly cited article in the legal literature. And not just because everybody was saying, you know, this is trash and citing it once and writing it up. I mean, <laughs> that was a lot of laws. And, you know, if I had no job, I had no job for another eight, ten years. It's because, I mean, nobody knew that it was the most widely cited article in the legal literature that year because the librarians hadn't gotten around to doing this thing I call cytology. Um, that is, the, the, uh, mm, uh, the knowledge of the, the systematized knowledge of citations. Right? So somebody started counting them. They don't count each time they cite you. They count each time one piece cites you once. So they can write whole books on you, that's one. They can write a whole article that's talking about you, or if they cite three different articles of you, that's three sites. But if they just cite one and cite it 20 times, that's one. Okay. I'm trained political scientist, so I'm telling you the database here, uh, so you know what I mean. And uh, so I didn't know that. Um, no one else did either. And I don't know, it, you know, it has changed certain things. One of the things that it's changed is when I started writing things the way I write and talking the way I talk, nobody did that in law. So I published this in Signs, a journal of women in culture and society. It's the only article other than, than the, the one on the Coase theorem in law and economics that has ever made the top 20 or been the first most widely cited articles uh, in law ever that is not published in a legal journal. And this was published in an economics journal. This was published in science. And the reason was because no 
law review would ever publish anything like that. Here's why the law is male. And this is about Marxism and feminism and economics and, and sexual abuse and their relation to each other and, and like that. Okay, now they publish this stuff all the time. It has changed that norm. Now, I'm not so sure this is a good thing because all these legally trained people don't know how to do theory from anything. They just think all you have to do is think a bunch of thoughts and write them down and stick them out there and you've got a law review article. So they aren't any good. But at least they're, they're actually, they, they aren't just parsing doctrine. I, I don't know if many of you read law review articles. They're execrable. They're, not only do they not say anything, they're intellectually horrible. They don't know what they're doing intellectually. It's like law isn't a field, I'm sorry to say. Uh, it, you know, philosophy is a field. I mean, it has a discipline. It has a history. It has history is a field. It has a methodology. It has, a, a, you know, um, law is is actually a discipline of reality. The place it takes place is in the world. That is where it takes place. And legal scholars can be from any discipline, or as they usually are, none. And you know, they're just writing about that, and partly because they have an inferiority complex because they don't have a field, and also because they're academics, um, they, you know, are trying to sort of act as though they have a theory of something, and or draw on some other discipline, and in which case often the scholarship is better. Like legal history is really quite good because the people are trained historians. You know, they have a discipline. But what they don't do is embrace law as a discipline of reality. The academics in law, at least in my observation, on the whole, although this is less true of international legal academics, are on a flight from reality. They want to get as far away from it as possible, hence postmodernism. I mean, they are in love with it because it, you know, it is about this sort of endless, dead-ended hall of echo, echo chamber, hall of mirrors of denial, you know, of reality, in which this, these ideas just bounce back and forth inside this thing. You know, it's as if writing about law as a text, it's as if it's a novel. Well, it, it isn't. She's real. It's real. It's different. You know, I feel like, go write about novels. I mean, even novels actually have more reality than the, the, the postmodern theorists give them credit for. Um, but, you know, I think really that's the most important thing about the work that I do. And I just want to say that to you because anybody who thinks that this work ought to have a feel for reality, I really want you to do this work. And, you know, it, but it's your commitment to that reality that is first. And, you know, legal academics who read this work know you didn't write it for them. That's their biggest problem. And, you know, that it is recognized at all is to me an amazing thing. Uh, but, you know, if your first commitment is to community and to change and to reality, and as I say, law is a discipline of reality. It lives there. This is not out there. This is in here. You know, this is real, right? That's why there will be people out there in the world who will want to hear from you and who will take your embrace of reality seriously. And then if you want to, after that, call it an idea, you can. And you'll have something to say. We, uh, we've
we? Uh, we, we? I did promise that you'd be finished, we'd be finished at eight. I wonder whether we could take a, a quick question and a very quick answer. Okay, that was a long answer. But I wasn't suggesting it was a long answer. No, it was. We, I realized it's about two thirds of the way through. Well, yes, give, give her the microphone. One short one and then we will need to begin to wrap up because mm -hmm. some people will have other plans. Thank you. Do you feel free to leave? Read briefly from, uh, from a quotation, because I have my essay in my hands, if you mm -hmm. don't mind. Mm -hmm. It's from uh, Martha Finman. Martha Finman? Oh, Feynman. Feynman, mm -hmm. sorry. I just wa wanted to know your thoughts about that. Um, she says, feminist theory must develop free of the restraints imposed by legalized concepts of equality and neutrality, or it will be defined by them. Law is too crude an instrument to be employed for the de development of a theory that is anchored in an appreciation of differences in the social and symbolic position of women and men in our culture. Law can be and should be the object of feminist the inquiry, but to position law and law reform as the objective of such theorizing is to risk having incompletely developed feminist innovations distorted and appropriated by the historically institutionalized and inextricable dictates by the law. And similarly, um, the, Ita the Italian um, Milan Women Collective, if you've heard of the um, sexual right, difference, yeah. Yeah, I have a similar, similar position about law, so just yeah. your yeah, I disagree with that, um, and I disagree with the differences approach to it. Um, sameness and difference is the Aristotelian distinction. Um, it seems to be, I mean, what it's trying to do, I have a lot of sympathy with the approach. Um, it's trying to say uh, that women should not be punished for our differences, uh, that we should be validated and respected. Um, my view is that differences are not the issue at all, and that we should call the issue what it really is. Um, what law has done is say that if you're the same as a comparator, then you can be treated well. And if you're different, you can either be treated better or worse. That is what Aristotelian equality does. That's likes alike, unlikes unalike, right? So likes alike is first class equality. That's be like men. Uh, for women's point of view. And unlikes unalike is you can be treated better or worse. Okay? Um, and I think this is a trap. That it's a trap for either protectionism or subordination. Being treated better is protectionism. Being treated worse, that's oh poor women, let's give us all this special stuff, we especially need it. Uh, Different, you know, uh, being treated worse is what we've got now. You can be paid less because you do, quote, different work. Uh, places that don't have recognition of comparable worth, for example, like the United States, that's how they do it. Um, they say the work is different, even though the value is equal or comparable. Um, and I just think that uh, to affirm differences in a model uh, that does not allow for equal treatment across differences, uh, doesn't draw up the challenge where it needs to be drawn. Um, the challenge is to the model. That is, men never have to be the same as women to get what they've got. 
Men are different from women. Men are equally different from women as women are from men. Right? Nobody goes around saying men are different, therefore they should have X or Y. You know, so long as women are different, we are othered, and we will either be patronized, hence treated up, or denigrated, hence treated down, but never be lovely human. So my view is to take hierarchy seriously and say the question has never been women's difference, since men's difference has never been a question. Right? Uh, the real issue is domination. It's dominance and subordination. In other words, it's not Aristotle's level line unequally divided, so men have this much and women only have this much. It looks like this. It's a ladder. It's a hierarchy. That's what I mean by top-down gender hierarchy. If that's the issue, then differences is really irrelevant. And Aristotle is, is the trap, we've, you know, the school cage we've all been in for 2,000 years. And it's time for someone to recognize that it's, that it's wrong. It will never get us equality. Never. It hasn't and it won't. And Canada knows that. And so does South Africa. So. Few remarks about Aristotle might be a lovely way in which to draw this. Right. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you noticed right at the start and were complimentary about the audience. It's one of the things we're proudest about here is the intensity of listening. Mm -hmm. Absolutely and, so. Uh, it's beautiful. And also afterwards, the, the quality of the questions. Mm -hmm. and, and yet again, folks, you know, you have excelled yourself and made this a space for articulate thought. But of course, I want to to, uh, for the last time this evening, uh, and I feel in a serious, non-cliched way, we could have talked for, for very much longer, but I want you to express your appreciation for Catherine McKinn, who came here, you know, a long distance. I mean, all the usual things are true, tired, coming in here, doesn't have to be here. I mean, somebody called you a celebrity, you know, I'm not sure about the word celebrity, but you don't have to be here, and you have been so... Not your Paris Hilton stars. She has her pants too, you know. We want to just appreciate, I think, your generosity in, in, in expressing yourself and, and the lively way in which you did. And I, I think thought-provoking isn't enough, actually. Extraordinarily exciting hour and a half. So can you please uh, thank Catherine McKinnon for the last time?